0: Welcome back to this week's OIS podcast. Today, our host, Dr. Firas Rahal, speaks with UC Irvine's ophthalmology department chair, Dr. Barry Kupperman. Dr. Kupperman discusses how he balances his academic roles with time as a researcher and treating physician, and what keeps him excited about all three. Over to you, Firas. Welcome back, everyone, to the OIS Retina podcast. Thanks for joining. This is again for Oscar Hall, a member of Retina Vitreous Associates in Los Angeles, as well as a member of Excite Venture Center in New York. And I'm super delighted today because I have, as a guest, a very close personal friend of mine and somebody I've known for many, many years in ophthalmology, one of the longest standing people I've known in the retina space, my great friend, Dr. Barry Cooperman. Barry, as most of you know, is an incredibly uh, successful researcher, clinician, scientist, and is—and a million other things, is now the chairman of the department at UC Irvine. Barry, welcome to the broadcast, and thank you for accepting our invitation. Thank you, Baras. It's a pleasure to be here, and again, I echo that. And, uh, we've known each
1: other forever, and it's uh, been a pleasure to be your friend.
0: Thank you. So, let's start with a little bit on your background. That's always how I like to start. I know your background reasonably well, but honestly, I don't know it as well as I'm sure I could have after all these many times we've been together. I know you've been on the faculty at UCI for a long time. You'll tell us how many years. You're the professor and chairman now, and you've been a chairman for at least a few years now, although I always felt like you were the chairman before <laughs> that, but I have no, no disrespect to those who were the chairman at that time. George Barthel, Peter McDonald, people. they're nothing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who are those people? <laughs> I, I've heard of a couple of those. <laughs> Very good. You originally... Trained, I know you're a former USC resident here, Doheny, and we can get into that. Doheny was USC, and now, sadly for some, they're, they've departed, and that split has occurred. But I also know that you you did two fellowships: one with Bert Blazer in Baltimore, and one with our mutual friend and mentor uh, Bill Freeman, where I also trained. Uh, some yes. a couple years later, maybe. Tell me about uh, the two fellowships. Why two, and what did you kind of extract from either of those two very brilliant, very efficient guys?
1: Well, again, uh, thank you so much for us. It's kind of always a little embarrassing to talk about yourself. So, uh, with all those caveats uh, or that caveat, I'm happy to share. I kind of had a very—I'm happy, you know. I, I just was never very process. I was more process oriented than product oriented. And at the time that I went to uh, did fellowship. I was a resident at Doheny, as you point out, Doheny USC under Steve Ryan and Ron Smith, for, who had been the chief there for many years. And I was actually, it was Burt Blazer, you said, but also equally important, was with uh, Ron Michaels. I was actually Ron Michaels' last fellow, the great Ron Michaels uh, retina surgeon par excellence, who died the year I was there. Sadly, um, Ray Shard and I were the two fellows that year, and um, he died that year of uh, amy- amyloid cardiomyopathy. Um, So it was really a combination of Ron and Bert, who had been at Hopkins forever and then had left to go into private practice. I was actually admitted to the Hopkins fellowship, and then they left. But that was a weird time because most of the fellowships at that time had converted to two-year retina fellowships. And this was one of the last remaining one-year retina fellowships. But I saw an opportunity when when they recruited me to do that, and then I also arranged at the same time. To do a second year um, with Bill Freeman, because at the time, one of my great interests, uh, sort of from a, a variety of reasons, kind of because it meant something to me from the sociopolitics of it, from the meaning of it, was uh, that was still the big bad old AIDS era. And I was very, I became, when I started my residency at Donahue, the first rotation I had by chance happened to be with Narsing Rao, which was the uveitis slash pathology rotation. And I um my first rotation and the part of that rotation was to see the people with AIDS in this in the AIDS in the c m v retinitis clinic. And I it was like a epiphany for me. It's I didn't realize why I went into medicine exactly, but there it was. I discovered it. Um my family's from Brazil. I grew up speaking fluent Portuguese and, and learned Spanish living in California for most of my life and you know, in LA County a lot of hispanic speaking uh, spanish-speaking patients that i could speak totally with them and could relate to them but it was a different cultural context socioeconomically and then suddenly there was this one half day a week where it was like people they, with the exact same interests you know art music literature except they were gay and i wasn't we were the same age and they were going blind and dying and so that was a very powerful experience So that was in the back of my mind throughout my residency so when i then saw this opportunity to do this incredibly illustrious fellowship that again at the time i accepted i thought i was going to hopkins i piggybacked it with a you know bill freeman at uc san Diego was one of the great retina cnv retinitis researchers uh, in the world at the time this was all early, early 90s, so this was before the, you know, highly active antiretroviral therapy and the cocktail. This was still a real problem. This was a period of time, interestingly, that they're predicting that the number one cause of retinal detachments in America was going to be CMV retinitis related retinal detachments in people with AIDS. It was, a, it was an era that, that was taking, you know, it was a huge era. So I went, I thought, you know, cleverly in, in my mind, I could do this fellowship at Hopkins, which turned out to be in private practice at St. Joseph's Hospital, because they left. But Bill agreed very kindly to for me to come in and just do a one-year fellowship with him um, as a second-year fellow, essentially, at UC San Diego. And I, it was a very productive year. I wrote a ton of papers with him. In fact, when I took the job at UC Irvine right after that, I still went down once a week to visit with Bill for the first year or two. and. We ended up writing, I don't know, 15, 20 papers together. Just so many projects came out of that. So that was sort of the rationale why I created this. So it was one to get the more traditional training, East Coast, Hopkins, et cetera, and then do the other passion I had, which was um, taking learning more about taking care of people with CMV
0: retinitis. I hear you 100% on your comments regarding UCSD and the CMV retinitis era. I was a fellow there 94 and 95, and it was called, and I can't remember what it stands for, AORU, which I think was AIDS Ocular Research Unit, which yeah, built me, that, uh, mm-hmm. We, had, when I was there, the two half days a week. And I honestly had your, your point about cultural e- equivalency is well taken. I literally had doctors flying from around the country to come get intravitreal side yeah. off of your injections with me in that unit, who would come every six weeks uh, right. because they couldn't get it locally, as you know, they, they didn't want systemic therapy. Right. Long story short, it was an incredible time in American medicine, and we sort of grew up in that. And I've almost forgotten it now, how well we've done as a, as a medical community with antiretroviral therapy, it's incredible, sure. Well, just to Here echo that,
1: that a bit and take it a bit further as well, there was, we were really in the trenches that I would, you know, again, a lot, of, yes, we gave off of their injections, but most were getting Gamacycler and Phosphonate. Those were weekly injections at a period of time where there weren't really many intravitral injections. We were, these people would come in every week for injections. And if they didn't come in, I knew they were either hospitalized too sick to come in or dead so i was i would make house calls i would bring my little kit of injection and go to their homes and give them injections i had privileges at every hospital in Orange county to be able to give them their bedside injections of again again cyclovir typically or foscarnate it was really uh it was i mean everything that's come since then i mean what we do now is so meaningful i'm not going to minimize all the incredible things we're able to do with NKVGF therapy, but. it it was different it was not the same we were fine. it was life and death back then and again for those of us of that generation it was people that again were it was young men of exactly our same age that again had because of their sexual orientation they were going blind and dying it was just it was a remarkable time and it kind of ended around 2000 when along came the highly active antiretroviral therapy and they suddenly started living and i still have a lot of those people from way back when are still my patients. They're still, I mean, one of them my contractor, for God's sakes. I mean, it's like, uh, they, they, they had, they had all gotten, there's this weird thing, I forget what it's called, viatical, and weird insurance. They sold it because they had a death sentence, they had a diagnosis that they're going to die. They would sell their life insurance to a company that bought it. So they all had money. They're driving Mercedes and Jaguars, except then suddenly they're going to live forever. So those insurance companies lost a ton of money because they'd given them all this money. And then eventually they had to go back to work and find jobs because
0: they're were, they, they were still alive after that transition in 2000. A good win for the good guys, then. Yes, exactly right. Absolutely. Barry, and I knew this, uh, you also have a PhD in neuroscience from Caltech. Maybe others don't know this. Tell us about that. Uh, Your dad was involved at Caltech, a professor also. What's the history there? Did you originally go intending to be a neurologist, neuroscientist? What, What was the story there? I was always
1: just sort of followed my intellectual passions. Um, I went to Berkeley and discovered biophysics, uh, non equilibrium thermodynamics, the physics of biology, essentially. You know, and you know, entropy would tell us we should be running down and life runs us uphill. So, so that became my first intellectual passion. Then I, took a, I always also took a bunch of time off to travel. I sort of, I went to Berkeley for two years, traveled for a year, came back and graduated a year later, traveled for a couple of years. And while I was traveling, I just. I was thinking about what I, what interested me. And I began to think about learning and how, but learning at a synaptic level. How do we rewire our brains to learn? So I began to explore neuroscience programs and applied to grad school from like a little hotel room in Bolivia with uh no typewriter in those days. There's not certainly no computers have been invented. It was typewriters, but I hand telegraphed my applications to, you know, Harvard, Rockefeller, Stanford, Caltech, et cetera, and um, with an interest in neuroscience. And then I ended up going to Caltech because um, uh, in that period of time, I spent about a year in Brazil. My family, again, immigrated from Brazil. I lived there as a child. Um, And I relearned the glories of sort of having adventures, but seeing, staying close to home too. And my father was a professor at Caltech for many years, professor of chemical physics. He did uh, quantum mechanics of chemical reactions was his uh, was his thing. So I decided to take the, I was offered a position at several grad schools, but I took the one at Caltech because I was in the building then next door, to my dad and we'd have lunch together at the Athenaeum, uh, you know, several times a week. It was a lot of fun. I didn't live at home. I had my own place, but it was nice to be there. But then when I got to Caltech and started doing research, again, looking for synaptic plasticity as the interesting part, again, it was learning, but it turned out that the part of the brain that we understood the best was the primary visual cortex. And that was the work of Hubel and Weasel from, Torsten Weasel and David Hubel from uh, Harvard, who got the Nobel Prize for that. And so I was studying under a uh, trainee of theirs, who is now a professor at Caltech, and was studying those ocular dominance columns. So, so I went from... Again, an early interest in non equilibrium thermodynamics to synaptic rewiring to vision, because that was the model system that I was using. And as I was enjoying life at Caltech, I was also conscious that it was, I was pretty, I wanted to see, to make it be more applied. As much as I enjoyed the basic science research, I thought to myself, this has clinical implications. It would be fun to follow that through. And so then I applied to med schools, and it turned out amongst, at that time, it's now been closed. But at that time there was a and for 30 years or so there was a program at university of miami um, that if you had a phd uh, you could get an md in two years it was a super accelerated you started in june not uh, in september you went for nine months six days a week of the basic sciences in february or march one you had a mock sitting of the boards part one and then you had a one year court junior year court clerkships march one to march one and then you had senior surgery senior medicine cardiology and a two-week elective and of course, Miami is a, a perfectly good med school. It's not great, but it's very solid. But what it does have is most famous and best department turned out to be serendipitously, of course, Bascom Palmer Institute, the best department of ophthalmology in the country. Of course, I had a Ph.D. in vision research. So I did a rotation there and it just everything clicked. And um, and then I sort of came back home to Pasadena. I, I was accepted into USC Doheny and once again lived in Pasadena Uh, while I was uh, going to internship and residency
0: there. So around the dinner table at the Cooperman household, you know, physical chemistry, quantum mechanics, statistical thermodynamics, the rest of us were asking dad how to calculate an earned run average. That's pretty high. Well, level. interestingly, my parents, my mom once
1: accused me of lying when I told her I used to play baseball in Little League. They were, they were Brazilian immigrants. They had no idea. We just want, put on this funny outfit and ride down, ride my bicycles. And in those days, there was no parents giving us rides or carpooling or that you were on your own. You walked to school, you rode your bike. I had a job in the morning as a curbside uh, laundry pickup for okay cleaners. I would ride down to a mile, two miles away to go play Little League. They didn't know anything. They were, you know, they were intellectual immigrants and didn't pay attention to that. But it is interesting. They did something like, right because I have three siblings. I'm the oldest of four. The youngest has Down syndrome, Sharon. And so we'll put her in a different category. But of my other two siblings, the three of us, my brother is uh chair of emergency medicine at UC Davis and has been for 15 years. My sister has uh, been a professor in the department of obgyn Was a phd um head of research there at ucsf for a zillion years and i've been at uci for a million years so we all went into academics following our parents leave my my mom was a high school chemistry teacher at a private school for girls in pasadena called westridge school for girls and my father was at caltech in the department of, they met and and as uh, undergraduates at the University of Sao Paulo in the chemistry department. So they both were chemists. My mom became, again, a high school teacher. My dad became a sort of world-famous uh, scientist at Caltech.
0: That's amazing. Amazing. Underachievers, clearly. Westridge is a great school. Tom Chu's two brilliant daughters both uh, graduated from there and are doing great things. As Somewhere there's a plaque on that science building that, uh, in honor of my mother because she was the director of the science department there for like 25 years. Amazing. Amazing. Let's talk a little bit about now, you know, your current work or say, what you've been up to at UC Irvine. I know it's a long time. I don't mean it nutshell the whole thing. But look, we all know you've got great clinical skills. You're a teacher, you teach fellows, residents, you're a clinical scientist, you're a benchtop scientist, which is often not the case that one does both of those scientific endeavors. You do. You consult for companies, you're on boards. You're doing a lot, man. And it's really impressive. What do you like the most? And and again, as I joked earlier with you uh, in writing, I'm not asking you to pick your favorite son or daughter, but what, what challenges you in these areas? What do you like? What do you dislike, if anything, among all these different hats? Well, you you
1: summed it up well. I really feel very fortunate. I actually graduated and took this job at UC Irvine when I finished up my fellowship in 1992, for God's sakes. I can't believe that it's been now 29 years. It went by in a blur and it's basically my only real job because, you know, before that it was, you know, little jobs or training programs. So I've been lucky enough to have this one job forever. And I just loved it there. It's been a great environment. I've raised. You know, a family there. It's been lived in Laguna Beach for a million years. Now we live in Newport Beach. It's just been a dream, wonderful place. Fuse Irvine was great for me because I'm very entrepreneurial and they never really got in my way. I never asked for anything from them, but they also never got in my way. That's been sort of my secret of success there. I was always kind of a, a, a good problem solver. But at the end of the day, even with my MD, PhD, and all the hats we all wear, it's still my favorite thing is to be a doctor. I love being with the patient and explaining what they've got. I love the surgery. I mean, I mean, I love the teaching. The teaching I, mean, I have I've had the fortune also, I was the residency director for 10 years. Then we developed fellowship programs. And I've got both an American fellowship program and an international fellowship program. So, for example, right now my international fellows are from Egypt, Venezuela, and Romania The a Brazilian, I think maybe arriving Monday. There's also one from Iran coming soon, one from Armenia coming soon. So it's just, that's been a lot of fun as well. So it's hard. And then of course, all the serendipitous things. Again, I mentioned that interest that I found in as a resident in taking care of people with AIDS, that was actually a huge thing that happened with in this industry. When I arrived at East Irvine, like another serendipity, not realizing, uh, just following your passion and not worrying about where it was going to lead. There was, a, it was the uh site implant trial led by Chiron Vision and my chairman at the time, Dick Keats, was on the board of Chiron and they closed it to, if the study hadn't started yet, but they, they had picked all the sites, but i had arrived, they opened up the door to let me in to, as a site and then closed the door again. I ended up being the leader of that program, first interaction with industry and was the you know, I'm one of the only in, uh, investigator on that New England Journal article uh, the, of the data, presented the data to the FDA, just straight out of fellowship. Within a few years, I was at a time where there really wasn't that much with industry. But one thing that there was in the pharmaceutical industry was AIDS and CMV retinitis. And so I became involved with uh, industry at a very early age. So just a lot of things happened serendipitously. And all of it was fun. I have to say, it's just been, I feel very lucky. It's been, again, as you say, it's hard to choose which child I like the best, but if I had to pick one at the end of the day, it's still being a doctor and sitting with a patient and taking care of them. Nothing is more meaningful to me than that.
0: Yeah, that, that says a lot. I, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear you say that. I, I feel similarly that with all the different hats we wear in modern medicine, especially if one is academic minded and busy uh, doing teaching and these other things, Nothing like uh, reattaching a retina live and then seeing the patient a month later, having it work yeah. and having regained the site. It, that's still the preeminent thing we do. And, Absolutely. Um, but here you say it. Uh, But you started on something I want to touch on, and it's very timely because it's what I wanted to get into with you a little bit on the science side, which is, you know, drug and product development, innovation. And you specifically mentioned the area that I, when I think of Barry Cooperman and science and development, immediately I think about drug delivery, ocular pharmacology. I know you've done other things, but you've clearly built a name for yourself, uh, have a niche in that area. Maybe it started with the Chiron product you were just talking about. Tell us about the background of drug delivery. Was it just serendipity? Was it something you wanted to do? Uh, How do you decide to solve a particular problem? Do you go to the clinic, see the problem, then go back to the lab? Give us a little structure on how the drug development thing came about and, and your current views of drug delivery into the retina, which we, of course, talk about a lot today right well it's a great question a lot of things sort of combined again as
1: i mentioned before part of what motivated me to come to uc Irvine was its geographic proximity it was close but not too close to home my parents i didn't mention had a beach house in Laguna. so my kids growing up would see their grandparents on my side uh, every weekend my wife um, is actually again is another interesting side and aside again i'm jewish from brazil so we're brazilian jewish and my wife is thai buddhist so our kids are this nice mix of Thai and Brazilian and Jewish and American and and Buddhist. So her and her family's up in L.A. So it was a nice opportunity. For, we were able to see a lot of families throughout that period of time. But um, during all that period of time of... Of uh, being at UC Irvine, another reason to be there was I was I had become this fascinated by taking care of people with AIDS and CMV retinitis, and there was really no big player in, in in Orange County doing that. So that was one of the motivating factors as well professionally why I went there. But I was conscious at that time that we were doing injections every week in these poor people. It was yeah, that, I mean as bad as the monthly injections are, the weekly ones were even more. Mm-hmm you know, daunting. I mean, there was one, I'll just shoot one little vignette. I still remember it now. There's one guy who must've had very sensitive therapy. I remember injecting him some Ganscyclovir and the leak sprung from a couple of other sites that he'd been injected from the week before and the week before that. It was like the, that watering can for the garden. It was like, oh my goodness, poor guy. So again, it was so. Then suddenly, when I got involved with the drug delivery, it was like, oh, this is the solution. It was like a lot, another epiphanous light bulb went off there, and that's when I became very, very interested in, in drug delivery again because of the Chiron Vision, Nitrocer, sort of Gansaciver implant. And that's when I then we had a very good department of, uh, of engineering here, but a fairly new department of biomedical engineering. So I reached out to some of the people there, and we set up a drug delivery unit. and We have patents in that space um so it became because of the interaction with industry it was really kind of this nice um not just serendipity but collaboration in certain sense it was an interaction with, with industry that inspired me to do some research. It was a very uh, rewarding that way. And so we uh, set up this drug delivery team. And to date, I still have a drawing dr- appointment with biomedical engineering because of all those efforts we did together. We had grad students, we got patents, we had a, a team of, of people involved in that. It's kind of petered out a bit now. And my interest is, uh, in my, has changed a bit away to more cell culture work and other things in the laboratory that I share with uh, Chris Kenny, a, a researcher. That's another story. But um, it was really this drug delivery was inspired by the, by the Chiron uh, Vision
0: cypher implant uh, that led me to want to develop my own drug delivery systems. That's fascinating. Let's say bridging between ophthalmology and engineering and i'm sure other medical specialties in engineering this has become somewhat commonplace now and i know you have this connection with the engineering department mark humayan mm-hmm. has a similar kind of bridge oh, like work is a, a god of that he's amazing he has a clean room in the early days when you were first making those interactions was that common then was this something that was thought about and planned was it just sort of a Organic evolution of, a, of the natural instincts of both departments. It was it existed, but it was still in its in its very early period. There
1: were some things going on, but there wasn't as much going on. But it didn't take long. I mean, our department at UC Irvine. So first of all, let's. I also want to give kudos again. Behind me, you can see our lovely Gavin Herbert High Institute and Gavin Herbert. To those that may not know, it was that he and his father, Gavin Herbert, was senior and junior. He's now senior, but he was junior then founded Allergan at a little uh, compounding pharmacy in a storefront in downtown LA that led to the Allergan uh, empire, which of course ended up being sold and now it's part of AbbVie Allergan. But again, there were things going on for all this period of time. There were interactions with industry, but it was on a much more modest basis. But again, what I want to highlight at our I Institute at UC Irvine, we've been very entrepreneurial And in fact, a series of companies have been spun off of technology developed at UC Irvine amongst them, and again, somewhere at that period of time as well. So uh, Rick Hill, a glaucoma specialist for many years and then went into private practice and then actually came back and retired with us a couple of years ago, but he founded the uh, Glauco's ice stand. So that little MIGS device was founded, not in this building, this building didn't exist then, but on that campus. Uh, and we still get patent royalty income from that uh, ice tent. Again, a company was founded surrounding that uh, and other technologies. We have stem cell companies. We have Ron Kurtz, uh, who's been an incredible serial entrepreneur, was in our department for many years. He founded intralays and LensX and now is the CEO of, I'm blanking on the name, but it used to be called Calhoun Vision. Uh, Dan Schwartz's company with that adjustable IOL It has a new name. Do you know, I've forgotten the name.
0: Remember mm-hmm. it. Or I'm sorry. It's, it's, yes, I, I can't remember the name, but it is. Okay, the one but that, that was that. So he, so again, we had a strong, long history of entrepreneurialism, and again, just as homage to Gavin
1: Herbert, he was the why. Why Orange County? Because you know, Orange County is one of the world's top five or six biotech orders but it's number one in ophthalmotech tech, and that's because Gavin went in, and moved Allergan. Some I forget sixty years or so ago to Orange County. And he was this very inspirational leader, continues to be at age, you know, quite elderly, still an amazing guy, still full of ideas. And I meet with him regularly, but he encouraged his executives that had great ideas that he didn't think fit within the Allergan portfolio to to spin off their own companies. And so there's this whole ecosystem in Orange County of ophthalmic tech companies. many of them were founded by um, Allergan uh, executives, employees. And there was another factor, Bill Link was this incredible venture capitalist who's actually behind Chiron Vision and others. His money and his investments, I mean, Glaucos was, you know, a lot of it was his investments and uh, several other companies have done that as well. So between Bill Link and, and Gavin Herbert, these were these two towers of inspiration and entrepreneurialism in Orange County that led to this incredible awesome Tech. So you, you're right, recognize that. So there's again, we've spun off a bunch of companies. Things were happening, but but it was very incipient. It was very in its earliest stages back 30 years ago,
0: and now it's just booming like mad. It's a perfect segue, to, and it's one of the main reasons you're a perfect guest for this show, other than you're a heck of a nice guy, and I love to talk hey, to you. Thank you. This kind of interfacing of industry, academia, private sector, private practice, venture capital. This is happening now all the time. The whole OIS meeting and and structure is, is built on this concept. You've watched the whole evolution of this, because I think as I was coming up, this was a pretty novel thing in the early days of drug and product development. We currently have this system where companies are spun out of university labs. This is a common paradigm, labs like Yours, labs like Marco Mines, many many others, as you just described, and then become private enterprises with venture backing and and ultimately maybe strategic partnership. This is kind of the progress. Is this the best way to do it? I mean, clearly it works. It's working for us now. Are, are there tweaks? Are there other paradigms that you've seen or thought of that would be better? Or is this the best way? Is this the final common pathway to product and drug development in medicine or the islets?
1: I think there's uh, I think there's a lot of ways to get there, and I think we need to have all of them. I think a lot of stuff comes from university. A lot of it are scientists that are in companies that leave the companies so because they have ideas and want to found their own and develop it. And, you know, uh, Allergan, when it was purchased by activists and still remained Allergan, they kind of abandoned all the internal development to a large extent and went to this sort of open science concept, which I think is quite valid in many ways don't fall too much in love with your own ideas. See what's be kind of a little bit more cold blooded. Interact with the company, small companies, the universities, and pick and choose what you think is best. Now with uh, AbbVie having purchased Allergan, um, I think they have that, that I think they have that hybrid model, which I think is probably the strongest. They have internal development of products. But also, they're always, their eyes are always open for um, opportunities to interact with with uh, small companies. And like they just announced with Regenexx Bio, you saw that uh, uh, licensing agreement they just announced. They have an interest in, um, we have a collab, we have an interaction with them. We have, uh, they fund some of our work and they have rights of first refusal for some of our research. So they interact with our, with our labs. We have amazing research going on now. We've ended up, um, I've really focused since becoming chair almost five years ago on um, our basic science. And we're now something like 12th in the country in NIH funding um, most recently. So uh, again, second UC system, second only to UCSF, a smidge ahead of UCLA even and ahead of UC San Diego and Davis in our research funding because we've been able to bring on a very strong group of uh, researchers, including, for example, Chris Palczewski, who does amazing. He's a member of the National Academy of Medicine and does amazing uh, renal pharmacology. We also have this amazing scientist, Bashir Ben-Mohammed. Who's another great story he's uh french moroccan um moved to france morocco when he was a young child grew up there got a phd at the pastor institute has been in our department for 20 years and now he's we he's got patents he was studying herpes virology herpes infection of the eye and uh has now developed a pan-coronavirus vaccine and we're uh, we've set up a, a small startup company called techimmune surrounding his you know pan-coronavirus meaning it affects it's, it doesn't look at those modifiable spike epitopes. It's the more conserved uh, epitope. So it's good against directly every type of coronavirus, which includes many of the strains of common cold, are coronaviruses. So that's come out of our lab. So it's really been uh, quite an energetic burst. But again, the companies that interplay between big pharma, small pharma, startup pharma, and the universities has created this incredibly rich and nuanced and textured ecosystem of ideas and products i think it's amazing i think it's all ideal
0: i totally think it's amazing and at uci you guys are doing an unbelievable job and i'm pretty impressed with the entire uc system The the number of campuses spinning out amazing products and amazing um, new biomedical technology is incredible. And and I'm glad to live in this state and be part of some of those institutions. Do you think, I'll I'll put on my cynical hat for just a second, I want your take on this. Do you think because the system is working as well as it is, and because these Bridges have been formed quite successfully over the last three decades, as you just outlined. Is there times now where we have to worry about the tail wagging the dog and people sort of uh, creating products and then finding a need <laughs> for a, a, an idea rather yeah. than the other way around? And do we have to worry at all about some of the biases inherent in all of us being part of the system at a high level and how do we ward that off? What your thoughts?
1: I understand your statement. I, I don't really have that cynicism because I believe in the marketplace. I think the marketplace sorts these things out. If it's a crappy product, it's not going to be used very much. It might be used and soaked artificially for a while, but eventually interest will wait. Will wait it. And also, it'll be it'll. What it also does by getting a kind of mediocre market in an unmet need, for example, to use that. Um, it inspires others to say, ah, that's pretty low hanging fruit. I just have to be a little bit better than that, but the product be better and I could have a product. Uh, for example, not to call it mediocre, but the data, you know, the complement factor inhibition and the thing that came out with a palace and Derby and Oaks, will they get approval or not? One trial showed such significance with a high degree of significance, but still only 21% uh, reduction of uh, geographic aftergrowth growth over a year. The other one was just borderline non-significant, 0.0526 or something like that, uh, but only like 12% in addition. Even if it gets approved, that's a that's a monthly injection for eyes that with GA. Are we going to want to do it or not? But it does inspire others, and we'll see. Also, of course, what Iverik Bio will do with their complement five. Inhibitor, but will there be other things that will be inspired to see that? Ah, there's the opportunity. They've they've paved the road. Now let's see. It is first to market, but if it's not a great product, it's it, uh, it becomes um again. I'll use the other example, macugen, first to market. Where is it now? Right. Yeah. And then, of course, be careful. Again, we thought brolucizumab was going to be great, and it was amazing until it wasn't because of safety concerns. And now we'll see what happens with farista when it comes up.
0: That's a great point. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, actually, because I do often wear a cynical hat, but I am also a believer in the marketplace. And, you know, Europe does it even more so that way. It's easier to get products across the finish line there. And they often let the commercial market really dictate. And you've got a lot of products that come out of there that then often want to come and become licensed here that never even hardly got used in their own region because the market spoke. Well, I, I would disagree
1: a little bit with that. It, you're right. The hurdle to, uh, to approval in Europe is lower. But then because of all the health care agencies and the way that they are very financially restricted, they get approved, but they end up not being available to people because insurers, uh, natural health insurers won't pay for it. So they have a different controlling mechanism here. It's harder to get approved because once it is approved, then the insurance companies kind of have to pay for it. They have no choice. So it's, yeah. so it's a different, so a different, so we, it's again, so it's, that's why here we can really have the marketplace sort out. There, there, in a certain sense, it's the insurers that sort it out. Though, again, that's happening more here with the step therapy and all that other stuff that does restrict the use of some therapies.
0: That is coming more and more, and we're going you know, to find out in the next decade how much of the step therapy yeah. will become trenched. Look, in terms of the science and, and ophthalmology retina, we know what, some of the obvious areas are that we're pursuing, you mentioned them, you know, dry AMD obviously is a massive unmet need. What other things, what are you, th- what are you thinking about when you're thinking about the next frontier after the great anti vegf you know, wave we've had in the last 15 years, what's next? Is it the dry AMD, are there other things? Is it well, the gene therapy? Well, I would say it's dry AMD up to a point. I would actually broaden it to say neuroprotection. I think that we need neuroprotection
1: products that could be used in a variety of ways including in dry amd i mean allegro's product uh, uh it looks like it's a neuroprotectant even our the company that was spun out of our uh, department uh, j site henry Glasson and his wife jing Yang, have these uh, human uh, these uh, human retinal i sorry these retinal progenitor cells that are basically injected into the vitreous and they're just releasing trophic factors. So they're, right now we're looking at retinitis pigmentosa only, but those could equally theoretically be applied to disease other diseases, including dry AMD, because essentially that's a neuroprotection play. So I think that's the next phase that we'll be on, and then probably it's the gene therapy one. And we'll have to see how that plays out. And then after that, I think will be the harder challenge, but we're getting there, and um, Mark and mine and others are doing a lot of great work on that, and that's really taking the stem cells, not just to use them as trophic factors, but to actually regrow the retina. I think that is the sequence that we're going to see. Neurotrophic uh, advances, gene therapy advances, and finally regrowing a retina. That's, I think we're, we're going to get there, but that's, pro- that's
0: probably in the you know, 10 to 20 year away range. That's an amazing roadmap, and I like it. I think that makes a lot of sense. And those those steps all do seem realistic, but long-term, I agree. Uh, okay. Certainly the, the full-on replacement of the retina. But yeah, I tell patients uh, there's realistic reasons to start believing in that now. I'll well, again, um, it would be patch yeah.
1: therapy of the macula. We try to, not going to grow a whole retina, but we try to get something laid down into a damaged fovea macula that would, you know, would would you know be able to get wired and functional um you know again mark mines of mine, is the way with the silicon artificial silicon retina but again now the biological solutions in there and he's certainly doing work on that as well With his, uh, he's got some CERB grants in that space as do others uh, other have other projects with that so i think we're going to get there a lot of very bright clever people are working on this but it's, it's hard
0: i'm in that trial and we treated the patient some time ago and we're in a holding pattern now but in just those 15 cases the surgery evolved a ton in yeah. those 15 cases it really was the first of its kind and it's phenomenally fascinating science and surgery yeah uh, we'll see we'll see what happens what about you personally i we only have a few minutes left you just told us the frontiers you know what about you you've had a great run it's not ending anytime soon what do you see for yourself what do you want to do uh in these next five to ten years you're a chairman you're doing science you're doing clinics what what do you favor coming up well it's an interesting point because
1: it's interesting being a chair i know a lot of people aspire to being chair i didn't really i kind of saved it towards the end so i've been chair for five years you know normally when there's a five-year appointment for many chairs certainly in the university of california system and they like to renew you if possible because it's expensive and, and and uh you don't want to it's destabilizing to have too many chairs cycling through so it's like and i when i agreed to do it i realized even though it was a five-year appointment that it'd be likely that i'd be reappointed what i'd be willing to do it for 10 years and so i will probably do that for another five years but i then look forward to another phase of uh, i mean it's i'm giving back to my department again i i didn't rush towards being a chair but i've taken on with all my heart and, and passion i really have you know, it's basically uh, I spend most afternoons in meetings, I have suddenly I have when I was a faculty member, I didn't feel like I had a, a boss. I never felt like, you know, my chair was my boss. Now I feel like everybody's my boss. The dean is really my boss. But every faculty member, if I'm not making their lives better, then I'm not doing a good job. So I feel like every faculty member is my boss, too. So again, it's a great I mean, I'm very happy to do it, but it's, I lay awake at night worrying a lot, too. So I look forward to a phase after being chair as well um, and sort of finishing, you know, that would probably be the last phase where I kind of conclude some projects and I also want to mention one more thing that's been one of the great things in my life in academia is finding a great basic science partner. So so I I had this phase where I was doing all this work with engineering and drug delivery and pharma, but then at a certain point I began to say, I feel like I'm doing stuff for other people. I'm helping making pharma products better. What about my own stuff? And even though I did have the drug delivery piece, I began to focus on lab work and, ha- and set up my own lab. And I found but again, I was a busy clinician, busy surgeon, a teacher, traveled a ton. So I actually found a great lab partner, Christina Kenny, Chris Kenny. She's awesome. And uh, she was an MD, PhD, an ophthalmologist that always had a lab, less uh, more research and less clinical. And then she eventually stopped doing clinical work and is only in the lab. And so we've had this, I don't know, 15 to 20 year partnership where she runs the lab. I bring the, the, our, our international fellows work uh, at least 50% or more of their time in the lab. But we've had this incredible collaboration on uh, these you know, cell culture, retinal cells and culture, and how do they respond to stimuli? So it's really been a regrowth of our, it really inspired me to stay in academics, because honestly, I reached a point where I was gonna join you, buddy, you know, I was always in conversation with David and Gary Thomas, may rest in peace way back in the day. You guys were always my, I had these two, I was so lucky, I had two great options. I had this great job in academics, but I knew, but David made it clear. If it didn't work out, give him a call. And there was a period of time around seven years in that I did give him a call and I came that far away from leaving here and joining uh, David. So again, that was always to, because that's still at the end of the day. I love being a doctor most.
0: Well, it's never too late. Maybe I'll send you another invite in the next year <laughs> <laughs> You guys are always, you know, I have to say, and I'll share this.
1: I've always, there's certain groups, I've had a soft spot in my heart for the for the Royal Oak group. I have so many friends there. I love the retina surgeons yeah. at the uh, Coli Center, Cleveland yeah. Clinic. They're sort of my, one of my favorite academic groups. And then I love you guys, you know, between, especially way back when, it was a period of time, it was uh, just uh, David Boyer and Gary Thomas. And then along came, yeah. Roger and, you know, and then you came along and Tom, it's like nothing but love. You guys are awesome. I would have always happily joined you guys. That was always,
0: uh, if that was going to be my other option, I felt like the luckiest guy in life. That means a lot. It really does. And the staying up late at night, thinking about how to make your department better and help your faculty is exactly why you are a great chairman, why you will continue to be a great chairman. As much as that's a labor of love for you and staying up at night isn't the best thing. That's why they need to stay and you'll continue to do a great job. They're lucky to have you. And really, as my great friend, thank you for coming on the program. I really enjoyed. it.
1: Thank you for us. It's been a pleasure. And again, somewhat embarrassing to talk to talk about myself, but maybe there's some lessons for others to hopefully it'll inspire others to, to basically follow your heart. Don't worry about that straight line. I was super curvy. I spent about five years traveling around the world. I got a PhD along the way, but it all worked out. Yes, I was delayed somewhat compared to my peers, but it's, I still made my money, raised my family, had my life. It's been great, but I've been able to smell the roses along the way. I encourage people to do that.
0: You're being very humble. For those who are listening, I know this man's career very well, and uh, he undersold it a lot here. You are nothing but humble in this conversation. Thank well, you for thank joining. You. Very, you've done a ton, and uh, we appreciate it as professionals that you're continuing to do so.
1: Thanks, for us Again, a pleasure and kudos to you and all you've done, too. I really admire all your efforts, both in your clinic and all your... Uh, paying attention to the industry and your investments, you've also been leading the charge on the on the physician, scientist, investor. That's also a very important uh, way to populate our space. So kudos to you as well. Thank, well, you, thank you for you. joining. Me.
0: Thank you for listening, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the OIS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our iTunes channel so you get the latest ophthalmology insights. Got a story of your own to tell? Apply to be a guest at OIS.net.